Troy Smith, our pop music guru, will be on this podcast tomorrow to talk about the new Rock Hall class. Make sure you come back. Troy always has insights. And hopefully, if there is justice in the universe, we'll be talking about Tina Turner. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi and Laura Johnston. We got some stuff to talk about today. Absolutely. Yeah, good morning. All right. Well, let's start talking about it. Why is Ohio turning down vaccine doses being offered by the federal government? Laura Johnston, it's just rocking my world to think two months ago, two and a half months ago, we were all desperate to get our hands on this. And now we're turning it away. Yeah, it's like we ran into a brick wall. Uh, we just don't have the demand here, so we don't need all of the doses. This is the first time Ohio has agreed for vaccines to be sent to other states with higher demand. So 80% of our federal allotment is either going into storage or to states where people actually want the shots. They offered, the federal government offered the three different kinds of vaccines, uh, 325,000 first doses this week um, with the breakdown of about 20,000 of this single dose Johnson and Johnson, and then roughly splitting the other two Pfizer and Moderna. But um, we're going to get some Pfizer, we're going to get some of each. And with the possibility, well, actually, now that Pfizer's approved for kids ages 12 to 15, we're going to save a whole bunch of those Pfizer doses for when we can start administering them to kids. So those will come to Ohio, but about 120,000 first doses are going to other states. That's 30, 37% of the total. It's just amazing to me that so many people don't want it. Saw a story from overnight, an experiment was done putting the coronavirus vaccine in with the flu vaccine and mm -hmm. it worked. So that's going to be interesting if next year when it's time to get the boosters, they combine them because there's probably people who are afraid to get the coronavirus vaccine that get the flu vaccine. What will they do? It's sad. We're, we're never going to get the herd immunity in Ohio, I don't think, because Not so many people just won't get it. Not at this rate. And it is kind of mind boggling when you think about it, that we still have new cases coming. I mean, we're we're looking at much lower cases numbers, but people are still getting it. And then we're turning them away. And I'm glad that at least it's not going to waste. It's going to states that want it. And then you start thinking like across the country, if this is a trend, when do we just start giving it to other countries that needed, you know, rather than just stockpiling? Exactly. Right. This is Layla Tassi. Is, is so are, is Michigan going to finally get the, the doses that they that Gretchen Whitmer has been begging for for a couple months now? I mean, what states need it at this point? Does any do we know? I don't know, but there are countries that need it. And there's yeah, a real vest, there's a vested interest for us all. India being number one, because the more it rages in countries like that, the more it mutates and exactly. can be much more dangerous. So the stories coming out of India are truly frightening. They will end up, I bet, being number one in the world for it. And it's and there's no abating. I mean, it's it's horrific. So. So, you know, if people in America won't take the shot, they want to risk getting sick, then at least we can help the rest of the world. I'm, I'm surprised we haven't seen people trying to, like, boost the tourism industry by being, you know, like, vaccine tourism. Like, come to the United States, get your shot, spend money here. Yeah, well, they can't come from Canada, though, because then they can't go home. So well, We should just give, you know, give some of Ohio's allocation to Ontario so that we can open up the border. You have no vested interest for you there. No. Laura, no. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How could a $5 million grant for a pilot project at the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority be a game changer for people in need of housing help? Leila Tassi, you were very excited about this story that you wrote over the weekend. 
Tell us why. I'm so excited. And I've been, I had been writing about this since I became a columnist in 2019. This is such an exciting development for the Federal Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is better known as Section 8. Uh, for the families who get to participate in this, this just really gives them a chance at the kind of housing choice that the voucher program was intended for. HUD told CMHA last week that the Housing Authority was selected for a $5 million six-year demonstration to show the efficacy of mobility programs designed to help families move out of areas of concentrated poverty and into high-opportunity communities. So these are places with good schools and jobs and activities and grocery stores and social programs and after-school activities and all the amenities for a high quality of life. So at least 2,000 families will eventually be chosen for this, and they'll receive these wraparound services to help them research communities and decide where they want to move and find a landlord willing to participate and accept vouchers and negotiate terms of the lease and move in and enroll the kids in school and find the support structure and all that stuff. And then they will continue offering support to ensure that the families thrive in their new communities. And this model has been proven to work in other places, such as Seattle, where they found just significantly improved outcomes for families, especially kids who, you know, had a chance to move into these neighborhoods. And um, so CMHA is partnered up with, with the Fair Housing Center for Rights and Research. They're the agency that's going to be providing all of those wraparound counseling service. And I've just, I'm just so excited. I, I've been writing about the merits of this kind of thing since, since 2019. I'm just thrilled to see it finally come to Cuyahoga County. It'll take a while to demonstrate how powerful uh, this model is, but then I think it will just make such a strong case for scaling it to become the new standard for how the voucher program operates. This you is what have, it was meant to be. You won't have the answer to this, but do you think that we got this because Marsha Fudge is the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development? It's, it's. I had thought that. I mean, I kind of threw her name up really high in my column because it's possible that she, you know, was, uh, you know, kind of put her hand on the scale. I don't know, but, uh, but you know, I'm not sure how many applicants there were. There were, I don't know, um, maybe a, a, I'd estimate maybe. Uh, a, dozen cities or so that received this grant um let me think here maybe it's 10 i'm not exactly and cleveland sure, ranks really but... high in poverty so oh, we yeah, should get it but i i just wonder if she said hey hey let's send some of that money to my right hometown. i think they, they they've sent in a really strong application the fair housing center is is top rate as far as the work that it does and it was very involved in 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 this uh application so i'm sure that on on the merits of the application plus the level of need uh, Cleveland was very high in, in the the list of applicants, but you know it's it's uh, I just love this development, and I, I can't wait to cover the uh, the outcome. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Can we say the COVID slump in Ohio's casinos and racinos is officially over? Laura Johnston, I'm amazed at the crowds that are going into the casinos, and we have not seen a big outbreak from them. I wonder if we should take the people who run the casinos and put them all on the county health board and get rid of the bozos they have there now, because they seem to know what they're doing about efficiently battling this virus. What are the latest numbers? They're shocking. Yeah, I think they they know what they're doing and um, they seem pretty efficient at it. I, the numbers are, are are really high. I don't know if there was ever much of a slump or just, you know, due to this reduction in hours, they were allowed to be open over last fall. But the numbers keep climbing. 
There's 11 casinos and racinos in Ohio. In April, they combined to take in a record $217.1 million in gambling revenue. That's after paying out the winnings. This broke the record of $215.9 million. That was just set in March, and that was the best ever for the nine-year-old industry. The previous record had been March 2019, $184.2 million. I guess this is like a high point for the gambling year, people are probably just like tired of winter. And so they want to go out and get out and they go to the casino. Also, they've got a ton of <laughs> wait, stimulus wait, 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 money. Wait, 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 wait. I know. Up. They want to go out because they've been cooped up inside. So they go so they into go... a windowless room with neon lights. I don't know why the spring and March and April is always a gambling month. Maybe they want to go somewhere, but they realize Northeast Ohio weather is still going to be snowing in May. So they just go to the casino. But but everything is up. And um yeah, the uh, even the Cleveland Akron market specifically revenue was up 38% over April of 2019. Obviously, we're not going to use 2020 numbers because they were closed last year. You All that stimulus think. money going to <laughs> good use. You hate to think that, Ugh. though. You hate to think that's what people are doing with the stimulus money. But, you know, everybody, this is a mental health thing. People need to do some recreation, and maybe this is the way people are choosing to do it. It's just, it's stunning that it was the all-time record, because we're not out of the pandemic. And right. they've got plastic sheets everywhere, as I understand it. It does not sound like a fun way to spend some hours, but I'm clearly... There's got to be a lot of hand sanitizer in there. I haven't been in a casino, but um, all that touching, all those, you know, slots i would think yeah, and all the cards yeah it's a, it's fascinating and there's a windfall for the public because the city and county get a chunk of that money you're listening to this week in the cle with the epa taking aim at the hydrofluorocarbons that keep our air conditioners and refrigerators working will i have to spend a lot of money to replace mine soon Layla tassi when the news of this came out last week or the week before i signed this story because i thought I'm having a sense of deja vu. Didn't we do this before? And now Pete Krause <laughs> has explained, no, 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 no. That wasn't hydrofluorocarbons. That was chlorofluorocarbons, <laughs> like Freon. So we replaced them all because they were creating the ozone hole with hydrofluorocarbons, which are supposed to be so safe. And right. now those are a problem. It's, yeah. it's like We didn't see that coming. But I don't think we have to replace our, our fridges. I think we could... Uh... They can go on ruining the atmosphere until until we all bake to death on the planet Earth. But so the the EPA is calling for an 85 percent reduction in the production and importation of HFCs, uh, as you as you said, over the next 15 years. That simply means that new fridges will eventually be made with some alternative coolant, such as one called hydrofluorolefins. So that's the next one that in 10 years we'll be talking about. <laughs> but it, it doesn't mean that they'll confiscate your old fridge. New fridges will just be more efficient. So you might notice a lower energy bill with, with a new appliance. Uh, but, you know, yeah, like you said, back in the day, we all found out that the chlorofluorocarbons were drifting high into the atmosphere and destroying the Earth's ozone layer. And so then they came out with the HFCs and initially they were a good replacement. And now they're also, you know, turns out they cause global warming. So uh, thus this new EPA rule. But some grocers like Giant Eagle already have begun making the change. I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, turn in, in Pete's story. So that's very promising. But as, as Pete points out in his story, you know, a major consideration is how we dispose of these old appliances to make sure that the HFCs don't leach out. So um I'm not even sure what the best guidance is for that, but uh, 
there's well i remember when they replaced the chlorofluorocarbons that you had to have specialists come out and drain them from your air conditioner because they wanted to capture them because they were so worried oh, about geez. those all. so i i wonder now if there'll be a system when you buy a new refrigerator when they come to get your old one whether there'll be some regulation that says they've got to pull it out because the, the problem is is if it leaks out it's it's a greenhouse gas and it and it could be a significant problem. I, and I guess there are lots of things they could use. They could even use ammonia from from what I read. But man, it feels like deja vu. I also it's like my, this the suspicious part of me wonders: is this a conspiracy by appliance makers to make us all go out and buy new stuff because our old stuff <laughs> is now? You know, right. This is Laura Johnston. Is the new energy efficient one going to be twice as much as the old fridge? I mean, what what are they going to make on these? Right. The whole thing. Anyway, Pete Cross did a nice story explaining all of this. Uh, when the EPA came out with its rules, there were no real world ramifications in any of the stories. Pete has put the real world ramifications together worth taking a look on Cleveland.com. It's this week in this CLE. Why are Cleveland and other cities getting less money, a good bit less money than we thought from the latest round of stimulus, even though they're still getting some pretty huge windfalls? Lord Johnson, we've been saying for about what, six weeks, Cleveland is getting $542 million in stimulus. Actually, city council, I think, voted on that yeah, amount yesterday, even though President Biden had put out the actual amounts earlier in the day, and they're getting like $31 million less. $31 million is a lot of money. Where did it go? It didn't ever exist. But yes, you're right. We have been um, publishing a number, $541 million since March 12th, and that was the estimate from the Congressional Research Service which you know took the amount of stimulus money and kind of applied it across the country um and now the official numbers from the treasury came out and they had they said that congressional research service didn't have all the nuance nuances of the rule so this 512 million is the final amount um and sabrina eaton our government reporter in washington dc <laughs> was kind of like okay explain but these are two different branches of government you know you try to get them to talk but um, the city of Cleveland's getting 512 million. Cuyahoga County is getting 240 million. And it's all based on um, obviously the population size. Every city in Ohio, well, bigger cities are going to get some of this. And what they can use on it is pretty flexible. They cannot use it for tax relief. Otherwise, they can use it for COVID mitigation, medical expenses, mental health and substance misuse treatment. They can rehire employees, help households facing food or other financial insecurity. They can help small businesses, support other industries. They can invest in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. So we'll have to see what we will be looking for the next year and two years about what they're going to spend it on because these are huge chunks of money. Akron's going to get $145 million. Um, East Cleveland's getting $27 million. We've got the whole list online and in cleveland.com or in, in Plainfield. Okay, but but follow the bouncing ball here. Yeah. Because if one agency took $1.9 trillion and did all the calculations and separated it out, and another agency does it and shows that Cleveland is actually not getting $30 million of what they were going to get, who gets the $30 million? I mean, there has to be winners and losers here, right? Because it all still has to add up. And that makes me extremely suspicious. When I mean, 
30 million dollars that's that's real money <laughs> where is it going how did we lose it and who's getting ahead and what was the conversation that led to that i have I a million that's questions that's a story we're going to be looking into uh, yeah, this we week are. to, to uh, try to to track that and how it happened i have many questions about this i don't trust government you're listening to this week <laughs> in the cle Ohio looks likely to have sports gambling. Suddenly, after a long-term delay, Leila Tassi, how would it work? So we're talking about mobile apps and brick-and-mortar betting facilities. This bill hasn't been introduced yet, but essentially Ohio would create 20 type A licenses, allowing the state's casinos and racinos to sublet skins or gaming brands to mobile app companies like DraftKings. And then there would be 20 type B licenses offered to set up sports betting facilities where gamblers could make bets in person. So each of these licenses would cost a million dollars and a 10% tax would be placed on each bet and the proceeds would go to public and private schools as well as gambling addiction programs. The Ohio Lottery could offer betting at its retailers, which would be able to accept $20 bets from customers. Apparently, sports gambling is a pretty hot debate right now between casinos and bowling alley operators competing to control the system and convenience store operators wanting to set up kiosks in their in their own stores. Uh, during the last legislative session, lawmakers couldn't agree on exactly how sports betting would be regulated. The, the Ohio House passed a bill last year that would have given Ohio Lottery Commission oversight over sports gaming, um, which would have favored the bowling alleys and convenience stores. But the Senate favored handing regulatory power to the Ohio Casino Control Commission, which would likely lead to casinos controlling sports gaming. So COVID was an obvious distraction from the subject for the past year. Now Republicans are taking it up again in the hopes of passing it by June. Uh, they say the longer Ohio goes without legalizing sports betting, the more revenue the state is losing to neighboring states where it's legal. Um, that that kind of makes sense to me. So, well, every, yeah, I mean, every state has had it. We're late to the party. It's like right. marijuana legalization. We we people are getting a habit that's outside taking their Ohio money, spending it elsewhere. Um, there was you're, you're right. There was a big debate. Ohio. Uh, uh, lottery commission or the casino commission and for the most of it the casino commission wins like you said the lottery can do some of this but but sports gambling seems like it's going to be centered much more in the online services and the casinos than it is in lottery retailers mm -hmm. okay we'll see that that's actually 40 million dollars for the licenses isn't that much money in, a, in the Ohio budget. In the beginning, the legislators are saying, yeah, we're going to do this, but we don't really see it as a big boost to the budget, which is surprising because there's a lot of money spent, as we know, at the casinos. We talked about it earlier in the podcast. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the Assembly of the Arts and who is going to lead it? And do we really need another another nonprofit in Greater Cleveland? Laura Johnston, it feels like we have more nonprofits per capita than any city in America, and now we have another. Well, exactly. And try to stay with me when I try to explain this. But this is going to be an alliance of leading nonprofit arts agencies in Northeast Ohio. And the goal is to kind of make the structure actually more easily understood. Um, this assembly grew out of discussions among a bunch of nonprofit organizations, and the goal is to provide a unified voice. They want to set regional goals. They want to represent shared priorities for the creative economy here, and they want to focus on advocacy, cultural policy, 
racial equity, um, cooperative marketing for the arts, all sorts of things. So it's going to have a govern um, a volunteer board. It has a strong commitment to diversity and inclusion, and then it's going to kind of be the parent group for two groups that already exist, Arts Cleveland, which is going to be called Assembly for the Arts, and then the Arts and Culture Action Committee is going to be called Assembly for Action. So I don't know if you followed all of that, but the guy that's going to head this all up is a Cleveland native who's currently working in New Jersey at Newark Arts. His name is Jeremy Johnson, and he's coming home to lead this nonprofit. Yeah, it just, we have the agency that was created to deal with the tax, the arts tax. That's a separate one, yeah. Right, so why couldn't this become part of their role? They're already the the group that deals with all the arts groups that seek the public money. I I just don't get it. It, it, So there's another one that'll be out begging for the limited donation dollars and competing for the money, or is there a deal where they won't compete with the arts agencies by seeking donations? They are going to support the Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. That's the county agency that distributes this $12 million a year from the cigarette tax to all the smaller nonprofits. And it seems like the goal of this is all to make it a little easier to navigate. But you're right. From someone outside the arts industry, just to look and be like, I just I don't know where to go. Uh, We'll have to see if they end up competing or coordinating. We have so many, so many. It's this week in the CLE. With so many people winding down their big spring yard cleanups, what happens to the mounds and mounds of yard waste that are collected in our neighborhoods every year? Leila Tassi, we were just curious because it's so much material. What (laughs) happens to it all? We thought it might be interesting, but it's really not. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I... Chris, did you, were you the one who came up with this story idea? I was curious. I come up with oh, all yes. the story <laughs> ideas. Um, because this one really struck me as like, you know what? Chris Quinn woke up and said, what happens to all that yard waste? He Let's looked at the border in his that. front yard. <laughs> yeah, I'm Every right. day, every day, I come up with three or four ideas to spark the juices. This yeah, was one of them. You're very good at it. But yeah, so each community handles it a little differently. Some offer yard waste recycling programs where they collect your, your waste separate from the rest of the trash. Others, like Cleveland, for example, they don't, but they'll take it with the rest of your garbage as long as it's bundled or bagged. So then whether we're, whether you're bringing it yourself or a city worker's hauling it for you, it's brought to a compost facility and some cities have their own compost composting site or they send it to a third party composting company where it's turned into mulch, compost, soil. One of these companies told Robin Goist that in 2019, they processed 316 million pounds of this stuff. I mean, that's that's a lot. So the cost is typically between $10 and $35 per load, but you have to be careful not to contaminate your compost with trash. And that's like the fatal error that people make with recycling all the time. You know, you throw the greasy pizza box and they're thinking that that's recyclable and nope, nope, you're just contaminating the rest of the recyclables. So uh, same goes for for this yard waste. Can't go around the yard picking up, you know, pieces of garbage and throwing it in there too. So I don't know. I just, I, it, it, that, that's a staggering amount of stuff. And, and you just think about, you know, when you watch them pick it up, it's just, I, it's a staggering amount. Do they just give out the compost then? Anybody can go get it or do they sell it to compost it's, company? It sounded like they, they sell it. Um, cause that was, you know, part of the, when Robin was describing, uh, how you can contaminate it, that they were mentioning that 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 ends up being compost that they can't sell if it's been contaminated. So I it's I'm not exactly sure what the going rate is for 
that kind of uh, yard waste recycled compost, but apparently that's where you can get some of it. I just got okay, a composter you're... this weekend, by the way. I'm excited to get in. Oh, that. I love my comp. I compost everything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'll need some really? tips. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Now that Democrats in Congress have ended the 10-year Republican moratorium on earmarks, Congress members in Ohio are seeking all sorts of millions of dollars for their projects. Laura, what are some of them? Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? Um, you rail against earmarks, but then if you can do it, you're like, all right, here's my projects. Um, all but three Congress members from Ohio have put in their request. Jim Jordan hasn't because he wouldn't want to give up his perfect score on that conservative ranking. Uh, Warren Davidson wrote a letter damning earmarks and then Steve Stiver, who's leaving. But the rest of everybody put in their requests. So um, Sabrina Eaton ran down these projects. There's nothing like a bridge to nowhere that just makes you go like, why are we spending money on this? Like no random study about like why college kids eat pizza or something like that. Um, we're looking at like a million dollars for Lock 3 Park in Akron to um, help fundraise um, public-private fundraising that would correct design and layout flaws. A har uh, harbor dredging in Fairport Harbor, which obviously needs to be done uh, every so often so that ships can navigate it. A wastewater treatment plan in Chagrin Falls, Medina County Sheriff's Office mobile command unit, updating uh, electrical and drainage improvements at Akron Cannon Airport. I mean, the, these are mostly fairly tactile infrastructure improvements that that the Congress people are, are asking for. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that Republicans who were dead set yes. against these are coming back. And look, these projects that they've asked for all make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, the the problem with earmarks in the past had been they put in some pretty silly stuff that taxpayers would then ridicule. Uh, this first round looks like it's responsible. We'll have to see if it continues to be. Yeah, yeah, and the argument is that the people who represent the districts know best the, the things that really need to be done. Like, why have a federal agency deciding all the money? So, and, and it is going to be a much smaller piece of the eventual pot, 1% um, of the funding allocated to earmarks. So, I mean, I'm willing to give it a shot. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the story behind the suspension of 17 varsity lacrosse players at St. Ignatius High School? Laura Johnston, it seems like we've had scandal after scandal in schools of late. Yeah, it, I agree with that. I don't have the full story because all we've got is a statement from the school, and this is a private school, so we're not going to get any real with a public records request, I don't think so. Um, but it's been definitely a hot story because it's such a storied private Catholic school. And people want to know. So the school became aware of an off-campus gathering with members of the varsity lacrosse team, and they launched an official investigation that revealed underage drinking, hazing, and, quote, conduct unbefitting of a St. Ignatius student athletes um, had occurred. So they said it was inappropriate at best, but no time where it was anyone hurt or their safety was at risk. So they had to skip last week's tournament and 17 students. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's more than a whole lacrosse team on the field at one time had to um, be suspended. You yeah, know, can I jump in here? I, I don't think that they should have said in their letter that, you know, this, that these activities exist on a continuum and, uh, you know, so it's sort of, you know, downplaying the severity of it and then saying also that, you know, at no time were there was their safety at risk. If you're talking about hazing and underage drinking, I can't even imagine the scenario where 
you you would just decide that that their their safety was not at risk. I mean, you're probably talking. I mean, teenagers drinking uh, on you know in a completely unsupervised setting and whatever hazing means, whatever that means. I mean, there there is a safety issue here, and I just think it is inappropriate for the school to downplay it in that letter. They should have just dealt with it firmly and and move forward. That's my feeling well, they, on that. I did deal with it firmly. I mean, they did come down on the students like a ton of bricks, but you're right. They tried to explain it to the community <clears throat> in kind of a backwards way. Look, it's not much different from what the Rocky River School District with did with the teachers, where they, they dealt with it, but they were not very public about what was going on, which just created lots of discussion like this. this the smartest way to deal with a problem is be transparent about it, deal with it, get it over with and move right. on. Leaving things to people's imagination is not not smart. Right. No You're one ever learns that week. lesson. <laughs> no one, no, no. no. And it feeds Public officials, like schools, no, no one ever learns it. And, and we say it all the time. <laughs> right. We do all the time and we live it. So you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for the Tuesday discussion of the news. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come back tomorrow, hear what Troy Smith has to say about the new inductee class at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs>